to our traditional Friday mornings, uh, Ask the Experts session. We have a little twist today. We have, we're very lucky to have uh, Dr. Fader, uh, Hank Fader, who has been uh, with uh, the University of Connecticut for a number of years. Uh, in fact, he was my, uh, my attending when I was here as a resident, and, and Hank is timeless. Uh, I think you'll enjoy him very much. He loves to, to tell stories, and Hank has a lot of COVID stories. He has been the front lines uh, from his home, taking care of a lot of patients with COVID and many who are uh, our own healthcare workers who eventually connect with Hank and Hank's been available 24 seven. I, I could not be more grateful with him with everything that he has done. And so uh, today, John is not here. Uh, John Shriver uh, will come back uh, a week from today. We're very lucky that we have Hank that will pinch in, pinch hitter, and I think you will enjoy him very much. So Hank will connect in just a minute. And then we'll follow with uh, Dr. Bennett, who is head of adolescent medicine, and Betsy Davis, uh, who is also uh, dealing with many uh, adolescents who have eating disorders. And I think in this pandemic, uh, eating disorders can go in either direction, right? People are exercising less, perhaps eating more, and perhaps at the same time having stress over uh, uh, the, the amount of food they consume or they or, or the eating disorders that where they, they don't eat. And then what about their mental health? And so we'll hear a lot more about this and you can ask questions of them at, at the end. So we have Hank, Dr. Bennett, um, and, and, and Betsy Davis as well. Uh, a little bit of an update uh, from, uh, from the governor from this morning and uh, the, the notes that, that I get every morning from, uh, from Emily Boucher, who's government relations, and Jane Bird. And every morning since the pandemic started, we get a, an email summarizing what the governor's briefing was all about and uh, and the governor said yesterday that after two days in a row having positivity rate of about two percent uh, Connecticut's rate dropped to 1.3 percent on Thursday. I, I don't think that's a trend down. We're still uh, the trend is still up unfortunately. Um, you have seen the the map of Connecticut and we have some pretty hot areas in the in the south uh, eastern part of Connecticut. There are certain towns which are uh, really mimicking percentages that we saw in Florida and Texas a few months ago. Um, Hartford, the city of Hartford is also a, a red zone in terms of positivity rate, just to give you a sense. And there are a couple of towns in the, in the western part of Connecticut, although the most, for the most part, the southeast part of Connecticut is actually, uh, southwest part of Connecticut is actually in pretty good shape. Uh, the governor is also looking at, uh, at uh, changing the regional travel advisory because uh, basically, unless you go to Vermont, every other place is a hot area right now. And uh, so there might be a, a testing solution that if you travel, you need to be tested no matter where you go. But we don't know yet exactly what that would be. And, um, and then uh, the governor did convene the uh, vaccine advisory group. Uh, Jody, uh, Jody Terranova, one of our pediatricians, is uh, representing us as a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics in that group. So hopefully we'll have a vaccine sometime in January or February that everyone can be using, at least the front line providers. So with that, uh, just my last message to you, please be careful. Uh, it is critically, critically important that you wear your mask, uh, but not only your mask, frontline personnel that are seeing patients of any kind, symptomatic or asymptomatic, eye shield, eye protection. These glasses are not sufficient. You need to wear goggles or a face shield. And we've had instances where we have seen uh, transmission of the virus from, from an individual uh, from, uh, from an individual who was asymptomatic shedding virus uh, to somebody who was not wearing eye protection and got infected with the conjunctiva. So please, please, my, uh, I'm, I'm begging you to wear your eye protection anytime you're seeing the patient. So with that, I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Fader 
to uh, to begin. Uh, so hopefully, he, Hank, I don't know if you can hear us. Go ahead and, and get started. Hank, are you on? Hank, I think you're muted. Am I on now? Yeah. Am I good? Yeah. I'm good now? We can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. So let me have my first slide, please. Okay. So uh, uh, when I saw the title of eating disorders, that's then I found out that I was the warm-up. So that's something that I really appreciate because I even have a slide about warm-ups that, uh, can I have the next slide? Uh, this was 1965. This was a warm-up for the Beatles tour. And this was in Shea Stadium. And it sold out. Uh, the Mets then weren't selling out, but this was their warm-up concert. And by the way, the tickets were $5 a piece. So, uh, uh, being a, a warm-up uh, position is something that is new to me, but I really appreciate it. Let me have my next slide. So the, the way Juan talked about looking at Connecticut, I have another way that I look. Uh, I look, if we look at the, the peaks uh, in uh, March and April and May, uh, they were averaging close to 1,000 new cases a day. And then when we get to the valley, there was less than 100 cases a day, which made me feel much safer. But now you can see what's happening again, and we're getting up uh, closer to averaging 200 or even more per day. So last Friday, it was 290 cases. Monday was 1,000 plus, but that includes the weekend. Uh, Tuesday, 320. Uh, Wednesday, 164. So uh, that under 100 uh, was much safer than the 1,000, but unfortunately, we may be uh, starting another trend. Uh, let me have the next slide, please. Uh, this was the Spanish flu. And by the way, uh, the terminology Spanish flu, uh, it didn't start in Spain, but the only uh, place in Europe that was, uh, uh, had a free press and was publishing things was Spain. So the flu got named the Spanish flu. And then we see some other names I'm gonna mention later on, sort of a weird ways they got named. But if we look at the waves here, we can call things peaks, waves, peaks within waves. But uh, it began really in the uh, summer. And then they had a second wave, which was very large uh, winter, and then a third wave. So that's what we look at with waves. And that was over a year plus. Uh, by the way, the slides I, I have, I took pictures and then uh, pasted them on. And I've now been told a new way to do it. So if I ever do this again, my slides will be more readable. Don't try to read them. Or if you do read them, uh, take a Tylenol beforehand. Thanks. Next slide. So if we look at the uh, first pandemic, which was 1918 to 1919, uh, the, one of the tricky things is it says one third of the people in the United States were infected and the mortality was 2%. Uh, trying to say the number infected is tricky because uh, it's infected and asymptomatic now, infected and symptomatic. So the death is something that's really an important number and maybe the death per population. And in uh, 1918, the, the number that's maybe easier for me is for every 160 people in the United States, one died. 
And then we had uh, two uh, second pandemics. One was the Asian flu, which probably began Singapore. And first, like we go back to the Spanish flu, what was different than flus in the past is the age groups. They got the elderly, which usually is the, the flu uh, uh, problem. They got uh, younger ages, which uh, now with vaccine is not as big. And then they got the middle age, they got 20 to 40. So that was unique. And then the next two uh, pandemics, the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu, uh, basically uh, was worse for people over 65. And certainly that's true now of something that's not the flu, but Corona, and, uh, but it's a pandemic and the big age group is over 65. But the mortality from the Spanish flu uh, was tenfold bigger than for the other pandemics. And in 2009, now they start to change the name. I, they, maybe we're gonna call that swine flu. And then we got it from Mexico. They could call it Mexican flu, but they call it novel flu because that type of H1N1 had never occurred. And the interesting thing there is it wasn't that severe when people got it, but the ages were basically five to 64, just the opposite. And I remember we had some problems at the children's hospital with a lot of pediatric patients with the flu. Uh, my next one down is just general in flu season. Uh, usually in a normal flu season, somewhere between one in 10,000 and one in 16,000 people die. So we go back to the, the 1918 flu, it was one in 160, so it was a hundredfold greater. And now if we look at COVID, uh, we have 220,000 deaths, uh, which if we put a number on the number of the people that got it, which is less than 10% of the population, we're talking about a fatality rate over 2%. So this is gigantic. And uh, we don't know. The thing that has changed is the age group is perhaps the people who are older have protected themselves while our age group of maybe uh, 15 to 40 is uh, getting soldiers. Now a lot of the group that gets the COVID is that group and their fatality rate's not as high. But uh, uh, there's all different ways to look at all these statistics. And now uh, you can make up almost anything that you want to show that it's bad or not so bad. Next slide, please. Uh, this is just showing, usually there's under 20,000 deaths with the flu. Uh, last year, there was, I think, 12,000 with uh, influenza, and now with COVID, that line only goes up to 60,000, but now we're uh, 220,000, so it's way off the, uh, the chart. So this is totally different than what we've seen in the last decade. Next slide, please. Maybe the, another way to look at it that, that hasn't been emphasized, and this was uh, last year, is... Uh, 32 million people got it. Again, we have people now vaccinated. We have people who are asymptomatic. The number may be larger than that. But we had about 300,000 hospitalizations and 18,000 deaths. If you look at the, the, at the bottom here, I sort of compared it to COVID. And here we've had 8 million, but we've had a million plus hospitalizations. So the thing that's happening with COVID is it is really stressing our hospital system. And uh, for a regular flu season, about 1% uh, uh, of the people who are documented to have the flu may end up in the hospital. Uh, with COVID, it's uh, much higher than that. It's 15%. And 
again, if it starts with the elderly, that may be something that's making that trend, and now it's going down. And when we look at deaths, uh, this year we're over 2% with the numbers recorded, and usually we're late, way less than uh, 1%, but less than 1 in 10,000. So again, this is far different. Uh, let me have the next slide, please. So may maybe my one story, and I'll come back to it, is uh, I have a son who had his wisdom teeth out, and the uh, uh, oral surgeon said you have to be COVID tested before your procedure. And he went to the office and got a COVID test on a Tuesday, and got it, which he just made it. And uh, the next Wednesday, he had his wisdom teeth out. So that was eight days later. And uh, so if you get a test and eight days later, uh, someone thinks you're safe, that's really uh, uh, not correct. Uh, if we look at the incubation period, uh, it's usually three to five days. The maximum may be nine days or 11 days. In fact, uh, yesterday or really today in MMWR, they reported an outbreak among two hockey teams and uh, there were uh, 14 secondary cases or 13 secondary cases from someone who got sick the day after the hockey match. And all those cases occurred within uh, two to five days after that one match. So the incubation period before you get symptoms is uh, usually less than six days. Uh, for patients that have mild disease or moderate disease and not in the hospital very sick, uh, the question is how long are they contagious? The tests that we do usually is a PCR test looking for RNA. And the problem with that test, that picks up dead virus. And in a paper that was in science uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, uh, it was shown that you could only grow the virus for the first uh, five, maybe six days. So the PCR was stayed positive for an average of greater than 20 days, but the time you're really contagious is probably only the first uh, three, four, five, or maybe six days. And that's based on clinical outbreaks and it's based on the fact that if you grow the virus, which is a research tool, and since it's a potentially fatal virus, it's something that's handled very carefully. But trying to recover the virus from people with infection who were just moderately sick, after five days, it was very rare. So therefore, if my son who had his uh, COVID test uh, on a Tuesday, if he was positive, he would only have been maybe contagious until maybe the next Sunday. So when he had his wisdom teeth out, he wasn't safe. So if you need to test someone before a procedure, the closer to the procedure you test, the better. The problem with the test is the PCR, and you don't know really where they are in the contagious curve. In fact, we don't understand super spreaders and why some people are more contagious than the others, and that's work that needs to be done. So if someone has COVID, and therefore is, has to wait to return to work or whatever their job is, uh, they have to wait 10 days. If they're improving and if they've been a febrile for three days, they can return. But 10 days after onset, the test will usually be positive. So some places want to retest, but that has really been dropped. So when I hear some of our leaders say, uh, I'm safe, and I test negative, I saw a wonder about really testing negative. But quarantine after exposure is even longer than after you test positive. 
because if you're exposed, what will happen is you may have a five to as long as a 10 day or 11 day incubation, and then you're contagious for five days. So they came up with 14 days after exposure to be quarantined. And uh, that's why that's longer. And the last part that's in bold is, let's say that COVID is nasty. Maybe in pediatrics, it's not as nasty, but certainly we have some, some danger post-COVID. Uh, but in what we're dealing with and still dealing with, uh, it can get anybody and put them in the hospital or maybe put them in heaven. Uh, next slide, please. So the first tests that were out there are PCR tests that detect RNA. First, I heard it was 70% sensitive, meaning 100 people with COVID, you'd miss 30. Well, some of that data was based on stuff in China where they found negative uh, nasopharyngeal swabs, but positive stools. Well, stools would stay positive, we know, for a very long time, and they probably aren't even infectious. So how we figure out how good these tests are is uh, 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 something that is in progress. And there's many tests and many numbers, but certainly in my experience with doing it a lot at the Children's Hospital, I believe that the test we're using is probably greater than 90% sensitive. And when I have someone who's positive and I get a quick repeat, uh, almost inevitably it stays positive. Uh, the uh, PCR test, if it is positive, it with rare exception, so it's positive. Some people have to understand why, and it may have been something still positive from a month ago, but uh, false positives are rare. So what they're coming up with now are antigen tests, and the uh, uh, SARS virus has protein spikes, and rather than testing for RNA, you can look for those proteins with a rapid test, even like we do for strep. And uh, this uh, is being evolved so it can be done as a office procedure or uh, ER procedure. It's not as sensitive as PCR, but the numbers are just coming in. Some of them have a sensitivity of missing 50%. However, if it is positive, you, you know that it's probably real, that false positives are unusual. So the problem with uh, both the PCR test and the rapid antigen test is, uh, depending on what you read, what the test is and how it's done, uh, the numbers are all over the place. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a, a slide just showing costs, which is very interesting. Is uh, the uh, PCR test, all these dots are different tests or, or variations of different tests. And in general, they cost for the reagents about five to $15, and the time is 30 to uh, two hours to do. For example, Wesley and I have a friend who's a doctor there, they get charged $23 a test. They're doing 6,000 plus tests a week. And uh, their cost for the first semester is gonna be a few million dollars. But by testing, 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 you can keep people safe. But uh, the interesting part is I've heard costs of hundreds of dollars for some of these tests. But in reality, if they're done in big batches, the company that's doing it for Wesleyan is making an awful lot of money charging $23 a test. A lot of it's transport too, to get the, the test from where it's done to where it's tested. And uh, uh, maybe if they uh, bring the price down, they could use Uber because that's not as expensive as some of the other things I hear. Next slide. So 
how do you do the test? Uh, here I have a picture of someone getting a nasopharyngeal swab and on the right side, an oral pharyngeal swab. Uh, which is better? Next slide. Uh, again, you can't read this data, but I put it up at the top. Here was a study in China where they had 300 plus samples and the NP swab was more sensitive than the oral pharyngeal uh, by 10 to 25%. So they said, don't do oral pharyngeal. By the way, I could have found another slide that would show just the opposite. But oral pharyngeal, the problem with doing that is people can bite. And uh, when you get a swab in your nose, uh, biting is a little difficult and doesn't affect the person doing the test. Next slide. Uh, so, well, should we just do nasopharyngeal? I'm gonna say not so fast. How about just uh, having a, a, a personnel or the patient themselves just putting a swab in their anterior nose or even in their mouth? And there's data for these. So there are other ways to do it and it gets self-administered, but if they're self-administered, they should be observed. So uh, next slide, please. So uh, this is a slide that was uh, just reported. They didn't give the data, something from University of Chicago, something from Stanford, where they compared just doing the anterior nose and the NP swab, and they were equal. So rather than putting a swab into the NP area, the anterior nares is, uh, according to this, just as good. And in fact, at Wesleyan, that's what they do. And they observe the person doing it. So the personnel getting exposed then is minimized. So anterior nose NP may be equal. Next slide. A letter that came out uh, in the New England Journal from Yale a few weeks ago, they compelled saliva and NP swabs. And if you look at the uh, uh, graph on the right, the uh, uh, oral swab beat the NP swab early in the course. And at the end, the uh, NP swab was a little bit better than the oral swab. Uh, maybe too at the end, since most of that virus is non-viable, uh, doing something that misses the, the prolonged shedding that you find with uh, PCR by doing another study, make something more effective. So, uh, Yale does swabs, usually not NP. They do it by mouth, by the student or patient. Uh, Wesleyan has uh, all their students doing it themselves on their observation. They do it twice a week and they do the anterior nose and, and, and it's working. So not doing uh, NP swab or uh, oral pharyngeal, it may be just effective other ways. Next slide, please. Uh, this you can't read, but this is from the CDC. So the CD says you do it, <laughs> you choose it, whatever uh, place that you're working. They say it can be done by NP, by a, a medical personnel or oral pharyngeal. You can do anterior nose, you can do turbinates, you can do mouth, you can do sputum. They're making them all equal. And again, the problem is we have different tests and different methodology. So uh, finding out the clear choice is not there. Uh, and they basically accept any of these uh, tests as being uh, valid. Next slide. So I'm gonna end with uh, just something about uh, treatment of COVID for VIPs, because uh, this has been in the news. 
And uh, I just want to mention that there is an antiviral out there called remdesivir. Uh, it's approved on emergency uh, use. And uh, when they use it, when I first I heard about it, I would think that they would want to use it early with high-risk people. But instead, they will only use it, and then they studied it uh, uh, for people who were very sick or people getting intubated. And in a study in the New England Journal, uh, using remdesivir, which is an IV drug given for five or 10 days, it shortened the hospital stay, but the mortality was the same. But if we look at use of antivirals, probably the most efficacy is if you use them early in the disease. Certainly, if we look at flu medicines, if someone has influenza and you start on day one versus day three, there's good data that you may change the course on day one, but unlikely on day three. So what's happened with some very important uh, people is they've been given remdesivir early. And by the way, the, the charge for it uh, by the drug companies, a little over $3,000. In addition to remdesivir, which uh, uh, basically is only being used as a, as a something for someone who is very sick and not early, uh, Regeneron is a synthetic antibody for COVID. Uh, they first were using just serum from people that had it and that didn't work. Uh, and uh, recently I read, and that's what you're seeing on the right, is uh, a communication saying that this uh, Regeneron, which is not available, uh, but the cost from other similar type therapies uh, is about $100,000, but some of the VIPs were given triple doses. So the cost of the drug uh, may be over uh, $300,000. And uh, what I've heard is after some of these cases, the people have said, well, I'm immune, but immunity is measuring antibody. And if you have uh, $300,000 worth of G uh, Regeneron in your body, you could test antibody positive for a long time. So if you get therapy like this, the idea of being uh, immune is unknown. Uh, and uh, immunity after getting it without therapy is something that's uh, probably pretty good for probably longer than three months, but there's always exceptions and this data needs to be uh, still figured out. I think I have a last slide. Last slide, please. So here's pediatricians. Uh, uh, I, we have synergists and I figured out that if we take the synergists that we use for our, our babies at high risk for RSV, and we take the dose, which is usually $3,000 a dose, but then we uh, make it for a large person, maybe like Chris Christie, and it would be uh, $46,000 for a dose. And, but if we triple that, we get that if we gave them instead a synergist, it would be like $140,000. So some of the prices of these uh, manufactured antibodies are very high. So. Uh, just an interesting thing. And lastly, using antibodies after an illness begins is usually something that hasn't worked. Even for synergists, they're using it prophylactically. So time will tell uh, how uh, effective these therapies are. Uh, I thank you. Last slide and I'll stop and let's go to the next step. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Hank. Really appreciate it from the front lines with uh, multiple, uh, multiple stories that you can tell, because uh, I know you've been very, very busy. 
So we will follow now with uh, Dr. Bennett, who is head of, a, of the Adolescent Medicine Program here at Connecticut Children's in the Department of Pediatrics. And uh, I still remember back on March 23rd when uh, uh, baby Luca was born. And uh, it, it, so congratulations to her. Uh, baby Luca has kept us very happy with pictures <laughs> that we see throughout the pandemic. And it just brings a smile to certainly my face when I see him. I think he's trying to walk now. And uh, so I just saw a little video before. So congratulations on that. Dr. Thank Bennett, you. if you can take it. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back, even though I've been back for a few months. But um, so uh, I'm very lucky to be joined by Betsy Davis, um, who's one of our uh, expert eating disorder dietitians in the area. And uh, we work together a lot. Um, so it's great to see her in person for the first time in a while. Um, our learning objectives are to identify the clinical presentation of eating disorders in the setting of a pandemic and review the medical evaluation, um, including telemedicine and in-office visits. We, are, we, we only have a few slides because we really want to give you all time to ask questions because we know there are going to be um, a lot of questions uh, from our viewers. So we wanted to give you kind of a brief overview of what we're thinking about and what we're seeing clinically and then really handing over to you to, um, to ask any questions that you have. This is a summary slide of the DSM-5 feeding and eating disorders. And so um, it's a, more of a reminder of um, kind of the change compared to DSM-4. And so we've really seen all of these, um, especially the top row during the pandemic in terms of ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, um, some binge eating. And then a, a lot of those on the bottom are um, you know, very similar presentations, but they may not meet the full criteria in terms of frequency of symptoms and behaviors or duration of symptoms or behaviors. So what I'm seeing in clinic is um, during the pandemic is a lot of teens who decided to get healthy during the pandemic. Um, there was a lot on social media about this. And so this can cause some restrictive eating um, and exercise, and then sometimes it spirals into a true eating disorder, whether it's anorexia nervosa restricting type or an atypical anorexia nervosa where they may have been previously overweight um, and then kind of lost weight as a result of their behaviors. Um, there, we're also seeing a lot of patients with uh, a marked increase in their anxiety or depression, um, either related to COVID and getting infected or just being home and isolated and chilling with their family for hours and hours on end. And we know that when your mental health um, is, uh, is affected, it can affect appetite, uh, it can affect sleep, it can affect eating. Um, and so we're seeing some presentations that kind of look like an eating disorder, but they may actually just be, um, you know, a some pretty marked anxiety or depression. And then the, the home alone phenomenon, right? So um, as, you know, parents have started going back to work and a lot of our patients are um, working, uh, doing school from home. So whether they're in high school or college, they're suddenly home all day um, and bored. And so they may be kind of eating, either overeating or actually binge eating at home. So there really is a, a wide range of what we're seeing um, during this pandemic. So one of my recommendations is, you know, really to incorporate screening for eating disorders um, into routine mental health screening. So I think we all realize that um, across the board, kids, adolescents, adults, 
are, are struggling with um, mental health during the pandemic. And so um, as you kind of ask questions about your, your teens, whether it's in person or via telemedicine, you know, asking how they're doing, how they're coping. Um, you can use um, validated screening tools for kids and adolescents. So the GAD7 is an anxiety screen. The PHQA, which is the adolescent version, is a validated depression screen. Um, and then while you're kind of asking about mood or doing those screenings, asking about changes in eating, any changes in appetite. So doing a really quick screen and then if there is a, a potential concern, then asking more specific questions that I've included here. So, you know, when did it start? How long has it been going on? Asking about weight changes, so highest and lowest weights and how rapidly that has changed. Asking about different behaviors. Um, you know, it's hard when you ask teens about binge eating, they all say yes, because unfortunately we've, um, the term binge has been used in different inaccurate ways in our society. So trying to differentiate between, um, you know, kind of overeating or mindless eating versus a true binge, which tends to be done in private and is very um, distressful for patients. Um, asking about changes in their physical activity. Once again, the, hey, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to start running, even though I've never run before. Um, asking patients uh, and parents about to do like a 24-hour dietary recall to really get a quick snapshot of what they're eating and drinking in a typical day. Um, and then for our females, a menstrual history. Because um, a lot of times I've seen a lot of patients who their last menstrual period was like February or March um, before this all began. So I want to talk about what we're doing in both in clinic um, in terms of medical evaluation for these patients, uh, as well as what your options are if you're doing a telemedicine visit. So in clinic, um, we recommend you know, getting accurate weights, having patients um, void, changing into a gown with underwear only um, before getting weighed so that you know, the, what they're wearing isn't a factor in terms of their weight. Um, there's you know, different theories about whether you should get a viewed weight or a blind weight, so whether patients should know their weight. I think if there's a concern for an eating disorder, I'd probably start with a blind weight, but if you're just kind of screening all your patients, they, um, it doesn't need to be a blind weight. Um, checking a urinalysis in terms of hydration status, um, pH, which sometimes can suggest um, vomiting behaviors and ketones, obviously height, weight, BMI, um, temperature, and then one of the most important parts of the medical evaluation are orthostatic vital signs. Um, and so having the patient lay down in the exam room for about three minutes, um, you, can do, you can have them lay down and like do the rest of your exam, right? So you can do your quick head to toe exam while they're lying down and then check heart rate and blood pressure. Have them stand up and recheck um, after three minutes. You don't need to do a sitting um, orthostatics. Uh, we're seeing a lot of patients who sometimes have normal vital signs um, in their, at their PCP's office. And then when we see them in clinic and do full orthostatics, they're significantly bradycardic um, and sometimes needing hospitalization. So we've been, we have a lot of patients that we're admitting to the hospital right now. And then obviously reviewing their growth chart because they may have a normal height and weight um, if you just look at one data point. But if you review their growth before, you may see a, a marked decline. Um, telemedicine visits present some other challenges, but you can be creative. Um, and so uh, my colleague, Dr. McCormick, was, you know, on the, on the front line when we 
converted all visits to telemedicine while I was out um, on leave and really had to, to come up with ways of getting as much data as possible for these patients. So a lot of families have scales at home. We typically don't like recommend that, but when they do, um, that's a way that you can get a quick snapshot of what their weight is. You know, trying to do it as, um, you know, in the morning after voiding um, or depending on the the visit, um, you know, having them change into just, you know, a t-shirt and shorts. Um, once again, deciding whether it's going to be viewed or um, a blind weight. For vital signs, a lot of patients are wearing, you know, their smartwatch and um, that is kind of taking a sense of what their heart rate is. So you can get a heart rate, um, right? You can have them lie down and get a heart rate and stand up. You can kind of explain to parents how to do this. So a lot of it could be done potentially before the visit even starts um, to kind of save you time during the visit. And then if families have a home blood pressure cuff, you also could get um, some, some vitals as well with a blood pressure, both lying down and standing. So um, really I'd say the most important thing is just to try to get like a heart rate when they're resting. Um, just to give you um, an idea of where they're at. And then obviously based on that data um, and what their weight is at home, uh, again, reviewing their growth chart. In terms of screening labs, right, so if there is a concern for um, weight loss or an eating disorder or some eating disordered behaviors, these are kind of the routine labs that we typically get, um, you know, checking for um, some bone marrow suppression with a CBC, checking their electrolytes, especially if there's concerns about vomiting, and then screening for other causes of weight loss or um, appetite changes or belly pain, so thyroid, um, inflammatory markers, celiac screen. We know that there's an association with eating disorders and celiac, but we don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. Um, we recommend getting an EKG if they're bradycardic, so a heart rate under 50, if their electrolytes are abnormal or if there's purging behaviors. And then for females, if they've been amenorrheic typically for more than three months, um, you know, checking to make sure there isn't something else causing them to be amenorrheic um, other than their eating disorder behaviors. I'm often asked um, by pediatricians, you know, when do you pull them from sports? Um, because this fall, right, there are sports happening. And so these are kind of the guidelines that I use. So if their resting heart rate is less than 50, I uh, typically don't um, allow them to do any physical activity, including gym class. Um, if they're less than 90% of their goal BMI, so based on their prior growth and prior BMI trajectory, seeing where they should be, and if they're less than 90% of that, um, I typically don't let them go back to sports. Um, unless they've been like gaining weight, their vitals are improving, right? You're kind of monitoring them and you, you feel like they're heading in the right direction. Um, and then regardless, if a patient's continuing to lose weight or isn't able to gain weight, it's really hard to add in physical activity and expect them to, um, to do better. So these are kind of the, the three things that I think about when I'm thinking about physical activity. Excellent, and now I'm gonna hand it over to Betsy Davis. hand sanitize that. Thank you. Hi. I uh, have worked with eating disorder uh, patients for a long time. And what I'm finding now with COVID is um, I'm actually spending as much or more time with the parents because they're at a real loss with um, dealing with their children who are home all day now, as opposed to before the school systems provided them with structure and food and so forth. 
Um, so one thing that I'm seeing with, with COVID is just amplified everything. All kind of emotions and behaviors are starting to um, just get magnified. Um, one thing I'm seeing is parent-to-parent -parent conflict, um, parent-to-child conflict, a lot more arguing between you know, the parents and the children, a lot more child-to-child uh, -child conflict. And one of the phenomenons here is because I think the parents are exasperated and the children are so frustrated and anxious, that the parents are surrendering some of their parenting roles just to theoretically find peace in the house. So they're actually surrendering, letting their children tell them what they're willing to do, uh, not the other way around. Um, and again, in response to this, some parents are getting much more controlling and are controlling everything their children are doing and eating and other parents are totally surrendering and letting the kids do whatever they want just so they can have some peace. Um, and if they're working from home, they also need a touch of silence while they're working online and their kids are home doing whatever fun things they can figure out to do. Um, the emotions that I'm seeing really, and the reason I'm kind of doing both parents and children is it is extremely substantial uh, of a reaction in both um, parties in the family. Uh, very similar grief, uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, the socialization, the grief of independence of both parties. The children want to be with their friends and the parents want to be with their friends. The children want to do things on their time and schedule and the parents want to do their things. So there's a real loss of independence, loss of dreams for the funeral, uh, for the future by both parents and kids. Um, many kids uh, that I see are fairly type A, they're getting great grades, they're star athletes and so forth with plans of working uh, or going to college uh, in sports. And this has really derailed a lot of that and they don't know who they, you know, what their goals are in the future. Um, loss of routine, uh, loss of control really for, for both parties. Um, I'm really finding that um, I spend, again, I said more time with parents. What I've decided uh, has been most helpful for me is if a child is under the age of 13, I will see the parents first without the child. I don't think it's fair to have a child pathologized when many of the issues that the child is facing can be fixed or managed by the parents at home if we can restructure the power um, hierarchy at home. So when the parents can kind of step it up and be more secure in their parenting, the children kind of fall into, into line. Um, the, one of the top things that I talk about are really just boundaries. Food boundaries in, in the field that I work in is more like, where are you eating? What time are you eating? Even if we just could control those things, all food in an eating area and all foods during some type of reasonable eating time. Um, which again falls into the scheduling of the day. That helps everyone because if the parents know that a child is supposed to be eating at around lunchtime and they're in the kitchen fussing around with food at two in the afternoon, the parents then would know that, okay, that we're, what's going on? And it helps them um, kind of tighten things up and creating a safer food environment for the kids. It stops kids from undereating and stops them from overeating, or at least makes it more difficult. Many planning and food purchasing, many parents don't know how to cook. They don't know how, and they're not interested. Uh, I literally had a mother sit on the couch and say, I'm not interested in cooking. I'm not doing it. 
So we had to kind of problem solve and she was able to get a private chef come to the house three times a week and cook the foods and portion the foods and have it in the house. Uh, that's not the most common situation that I'm seeing, but it is an option. Some uh, food delivery systems work very well. So there are ways of working around that um, that may not be perfect or ideal, but certainly better than the alternative. Um, the one thing that I do with, with the younger kids is the parents need to portion the food until the child demonstrates the ability to have an adequate portion size. Uh, what I'm finding is kids are just telling parents what they're gonna eat and how much and when, and it's providing a little bit of a loss of control. Uh, for the kids, again, you know, part of this is me reinforcing the hierarchy in the family. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I sit and ask them, how does it feel for me to tell your mom that she needs to do this for you? And they kind of sit and look and they're like, actually, it feels better. Some kids get frustrated, but most kids, when they really sit into the idea that somebody's actually going to take this burden away from them, they can relax a little bit. Because if you think about how they've spent most of their childhood in school systems is the meals are prepared and served for them. They're used to having that part of their life taken care of. And uh, for the most part, it does feel better for them. Um, parent and child decisions, again, the parent certainly can take feedback from the children as far as likes and dislikes, but uh, the parent ultimately needs to make the decision of variety uh, and health of the food choices. Boundaries, again, we cover that, where to eat and when to eat. There really should not be any eating in bedrooms. There should not be any eating in front of screens. Um, and again, sometimes just that very simple rule, theoretically simple, is a cleaner rule that parents can follow if they want to deal with the fussing that the children might have in the response in the first few days. Um, that's something, again, that I'm working with the parents on is them being kind of diligent, but also patient, knowing that the first three to four days of implementing a new rule is going to become very contentious in the house. But once they stand their ground after five or six days and it becomes the pattern, then the children usually settle into that new routine. Uh, and the children, again, uh, kind of helping them develop coping skills. They need to be coloring, they need to be writing, they need to be outside playing. Uh, exercise, you know, we can structure exercise as well, but kids need to be out having fun, using their creative parts of their bodies and brains and getting away from the food distress. Um, so we are open for questions. Um, not sure how that goes, but I'm sure somebody here does. <laughs> yeah, we, we got this. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. That was, that was fabulous, and I really appreciate it. So we have uh, a number of questions. So hopefully, Dr. Fader is on the line. When we'll, we'll go back and forth between uh, you know be, between both of you and Dr. Fader. So if you can get close to the microphone, Melissa, then and then uh, you just can socially uh, uh, distantly share. Um, okay, here's the first one from uh, from from Carrie Strime. Uh, thank you again for a very informative session. Can you clarify two things? This is for Hank. If a family member tests positive. The rest of the family needs to be on quarantine for 10 days so that the family members contagious plus 14 days for their own incubation. Secondly, um, if uh, are children allowed to be in school with routine runny noses? I think the schools are handling it very differently. So I, I guess two questions. One is clarify quarantine time, Hank, and then the second one, what about the runny noses? 
So the, the, the problem with someone testing positive in the family, that's a real exposure. And if they test positive, you don't know if they're contagious or not. So what you have to then do is say, okay, we have to assume they're contagious. That family member may have an incubation period as long as nine, 10, or 11 days. And then if they get asymptomatic infection, that's going to make them contagious for another uh, four to six days. So that's why it's 14 days. And uh, even testing during that time may help tell you where you are, but it's not perfect. So 14 days after an exposure, and again, with a family member, it's a real exposure. So that's why that 14 days. If you're the one who's positive, uh, you are only contagious if that's at the beginning and asymptomatic for uh, three to six days. And to be safe, they say 10 days uh, uh, and that's 10 days. So that's a little different. If someone is still sick and still has fever, then it's longer. Those is, I, I, I've been dealing with the hospital, with the, the personnel, and I've seen everything. And uh, if someone normally gets a runny nose with allergies, and uh, if it's something that they're used to, I interpret that different than if it's something new. Uh, it's a, a neat thing that I've seen for people exposed because they're looking for it is they may lose ten, uh, taste or smell. And at first they don't even know what, what they're losing because it's so weird. So COVID could present with a runny nose. I wish testing was very easy and rapid. That way we could always solve all those problems. But uh, I think there's a judgment thing with runny nose because uh, a lot of kids have chronic runny noses and it's endless. So the runny nose is a judgment thing and uh, testing is something for the result. It really doesn't help you at all. For either one of you, uh, and, and it's from Rebecca Moles. Thank you. Regarding the rules of no eating in bedrooms, only in food spaces, is that recommended for all kids or only kids who are overeating? Eating if you're struggling with your child eating, is it okay for them to be eating between meals uh, during online school. So if you can come to the, to the podium. Um, that, that's a great question. Um, my uh, thought is that we don't want to create a poor eating habit to fix a poor eating habit. So if someone is an under eater, we don't want to say eat whatever you want, eat whenever and wherever you want, because that still doesn't teach them solid eating behaviors. Um, so I think that all kids could um, really benefit from healthy eating behaviors, regardless of whether their weight is on the high side or the low side. Um, and I know that, that if someone's ill and they can't get out of bed and they don't feel well and they need to be in their bed, then I think bringing some good healthy um, homemade chicken soup to them in bed would be fine. But I think when it's a, uh, a kind of a chronic eating problem on the under eating or the overeating side. I think we still want to exercise solid behavior. So when they grow up, they're still developing good behaviors. So in, uh, uh, Dr. Bennett is, uh, is a constant expression of feeling guilty after every meal a cause for concern, even when the meal is healthy. Yeah, I would be concerned about that. Um, and I think it's asking the, the why. So are they feeling guilty because, um, you know, some adolescents are realize that 
there's a lot of food insecurity in the world and sometimes they feel guilty because they have access to food whereas other teens or kids or families don't um, and so I think it needs to be investigated in terms of why they're feeling that way um, in terms of you know whether something classifies as binge eating or not so there's certain criteria um, for binge eating um, typically you need two or more uh, features one is you know consuming um, a very large amount of food in a short period of time, typically less than two hours, um, feeling a lack of a sense of um, lack of control when you're eating that you can't stop um, eating even even if you're not hungry. So eating until you're feeling uncomfortably full. And then I think one of the most um, pertinent features is that feeling of like guilt or shame or distress um, afterwards. So oftentimes um, teens are when they're binge eating is typically in the evening or overnight. Um, no one knows about it. They feel um, they get very tearful when you ask them about it. Um, you know, different than, hey, my like best friend and I like demolished a large pizza and we both felt like kind of yucky afterwards because it was a lot of food, but it was like good. Um, that's not not binge eating. That's just typical eating. Also for you, uh, the, uh, the question about uh, uh, media. Uh, what do we do about media watching and, and uh, getting online in the, in the COVID era with eating disorders uh, or even just depression in the adolescent population? Yeah, uh, it's hard because, you know, we know that teens are very connected to social media at baseline. Um, and then the, the increased isolation that a pandemic brings, a lot of teens are using media more to try to find that social connectedness. Um, I think there really is a balance. And so if someone has an eating disorder and they're, and they're viewing things on social media about, you know, different portrayals of body image and, you know, ideal bodies and um, food or nutrition or things like that, that's not a healthy behavior. But if they're using social media to try to um, connect with others in a healthy place, I think it, it potentially can be beneficial. So it's really kind of monitoring the social media use. Um, you know, trying to encourage safe social interactions um, that aren't just on their phone. So, you know, like FaceTime with family or friends or getting together, you know, outside socially distancing so that they can see um, their family or see their friends. So making sure that they have other opportunities to socialize. Um, I think a lot of my patients are really actually like going to school for those on a hybrid model. They like the in-person days more because they, they like get that social interaction. Um, those who have decided to do, you know, remote learning only are becoming kind of becoming more and more socially isolated. So figuring out creative ways to help them um, find those social connections and not just going down the, the spiral of social media. Thank you. Uh, Hank, when, uh, Hank, this is for you. Um, how do you deal with the issue of perceived false negative SARS-CoV-2 testing? And uh, I guess I, I'm going to base it on uh, if a PCR is negative, is it really negative and people may still be concerned that they have COVID? Uh, I, I had a case of a teacher and <clears throat> some of the students who had a cough and they basically shut down the whole class and testing for the teacher was negative. And I think for one of the kids in the class was negative. Uh, yes, it can happen. And if you really think it's COVID, because the story fits, usually a second test, if that's negative, then you better rethink it. I've had a few cases that were clearly COVID, and I tested it a few times, and it wasn't. So uh, 
I, I believe two false uh, negatives in a row would be highly unlikely with the uh, technology that we're using at Children's Hospital. So you, you have to use the technology knowing it's not perfect and then knowing the danger in case you're wrong. So that would be, that would be another, another thing to consider. But uh, a negative test is very helpful. I use them. If it really seems that it's a false negative and it's repeated and you have two, then in most circumstances, I would say I trust the test. Great. Thank you, Hank. Um, has access to good food, good food been an issue in the pandemic? Uh, boy, that word good and bad is a tough one for me because I'm not sure exactly what they mean by good. Um, if they're speaking about nutritious food, I'm not finding that it is not accessible. I think it depends on the parent's comfort. I think that um, many grocery stores have done a fabulous job of the curbside pickup. They've had um, a great te technology uh, in, to, to access those foods. Uh, grocery stores now, you know, are open with uh, masks and so forth. So I, I don't, I haven't really seen a, a decrease in high quality food availability. It's much easier to get apples than it is toilet paper. And uh, Dr. Bennett, for you, how do you figure out a goal BMI? Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> um, so the so there's kind of two approaches one is the you know you have like two minutes before you're going to go in and see the patient um, and you need to kind of rapidly assess where they're at so look at their bmi growth chart and say so say their bmi is um you know 17 that day and then draw a straight line up to where their bmi was before they lost weight so whether it's at the 50th percentile, the 75th percentile, the 25th percentile, kind of see where their BMI has been tracking and then go straight up and eyeball it. So say their BMI that today is 17 and you look up and you're just like, ooh, they, before they probably should be around a BMI of 20. Simple equation, a fraction, and that's the percentage of, um, of body weight. And then you can do a reverse calculation to figure out what weight that corresponds to. Um, the more kind of accurate way of doing it is using the CDC BMI calculator for um, children and teens. So you enter the patient's date of birth, the current date, um, their sex, their height, and then you enter um, different weights and hit calculate and it tells you, okay, for this patient at this weight, this is what percentile BMI they're at. And just kind of going back and forth to figure out, okay, if I think this patient needs to be at the 75th percentile BMI, going back and forth and recalculating on based on different weights, what weight that corresponds to, um, and then doing a fraction in terms of their weight that day and the weight um, that, they, that they should be at and doing that um, equation. Dopamine dose from the new Yes. <laughs> so, uh, last question for, uh, for for you, uh, Dr. Bennett, is what are the demographics of the teens experiencing uh, eating disorders? Urbans, um, suburban, rural, males, females? All, All of the above. Okay, so you've seen it across the board. Across the board. So um, does health disparities play a role here? In, in Yes. I mean, I think, you know, the, the question about access to healthy food, I think food insecurity is, we're obviously seeing an increase in that. Um, and so something to be mindful of in terms of, you know, is there, is that playing a role in terms of their eating? But um, I mean, before the pandemic, we've known for years that eating disorders are not um, 
they don't um, only happen in a certain demographic, um, that they happen across the board. With ARFID, we're seeing um, more males uh, for sure compared to other eating disorders. There's still a female predominance, but um, definitely a significant number of males and younger ages as well. Um, so I've, it does not, um, eating disorders don't discriminate, I would say. So Thank we should you. be kind of thinking about it and screening all patients for it, not just um, certain ones. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's 9.02. There were a number thank of you. questions that I could not get to today. So thank you for participating. Thank you for our panelists this morning. Uh, please stay safe. Uh, we'll see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and then on Friday back on this session uh, with uh, Dr. Schreiber. Uh, Dr. Fader, thank you. Dr. Bennett and Betsy, thank you very much for what you have done and continue to do. Take care. Bye-bye.